0: This is Kevin Klinkenberg. Welcome to the Messy City Podcast. wanted to talk today a little bit about how change comes to uh, professions and to uh, society at large, especially uh, advanced, uh, wealthy, and, and very highly managed uh, societies like ours uh, in the United States and in a lot of Western countries. This topic kind of came to mind and was spurred to me uh, by a a blog post I read the other day. uh, A wonderful little uh, blog, another Substack called Urbanism Speakeasy, that uh, I would highly suggest uh, you check out. It's written by Andy, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher your last name, Andy. I'm sorry. It's uh, Bono uh, or Bono. I'm not. I'm, I'm not really sure. It's terrible with a last name like Klinkenberg, I'm always really sensitive to. Uh, mispronounced names. Uh, So uh, I'm I'm sorry if I got that wrong, Andy, but uh, he writes a terrific uh, Substack called Urbanism Urbanism Speakeasy. And he writes a lot about the uh, traffic engineering profession and the planning professions and critiques of uh, how these professions have gone about their business for a very long time and more or less continue to do so uh, in spite of obvious Uh, needs to change, and and obvious uh, data that shows change would be necessary. So it it really kind of caught my attention. uh, And I I wanted to talk a little bit about my observations, what I've seen uh, in practice in the world of uh, architecture development, uh, urban design, over the last 30 years or so, and just my own uh, reading of history uh, in in this world. So I I often talk about this in public presentations that I give. And uh, I tend to start with, you know, talking first about food. And and so I'm going to start right there uh, because I think it's always an interesting analogy. And uh, food and and drink and, and everything is something that we can all identify with because we all eat. We all eat and drink. Uh, we're, we we do it every day. We're, we're much more keenly aware of the changes that happen uh, within food and, and drink. And it's just something that we can all identify with. There's obviously a reason that cooking shows uh, are very, very popular. Why chefs who do cooking shows. And I, I was, uh, you probably know from previous episodes, I was a big fan of Anthony Bourdain's back in the day and his show absolutely adored and loved his show. And, how he used food to connect uh, people uh, from all different parts of the world and connect with people. And uh, whether, whether you saw the world the same or differently, no matter what it was, there was a, a great way to identify with other humans by sitting down and sharing a meal and, and doing something that, that you love in, in your own way. And so I, I often like to talk about food as, 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 an analogy for how our world is changing uh, and how change can happen. And, and if you look at it, uh, I, I kind of start back in the immediate uh, post-World War II era and talk a lot about how uh, our food systems uh, really dramatically changed. And we really instituted a very industrialized, uh, technocratic approach to the growing production and delivery of food. Uh, in the nineteen, especially in the nineteen fifties and sixties, and then well into the seventies, and if you are old enough to remember, you probably remember eating, you know, the all the sort of meals that uh, you just popped in the microwave, the TV dinners, and it's pretty funny to look back now and, and see that there were all these different um, cuisines that were available through TV dinners that were highly promoted. So you had your Mexican dinner, and you had your Chinese dinner, and you had your Thanksgiving dinner. And it was really very much touted at the time that this was a new world uh, we were entering and that food is fuel. And uh, with our new industrial, highly, uh, you know, technology based society that we're heading towards a a, a George Jetson type future where you were just going to get your food out of a out of a vending machine uh, and you would pop it in another machine that would heat it up for you and then you're good to go. And boy, isn't that progress? That is just so much better. It's a, it's a much better way for humans to be. It's very futuristic. And obviously that, uh, that notion of the future, that vision of the future, um, uh, has fallen apart. We, we don't, we pretty much don't tend to see things that way today. Our society has changed a lot. So how did that happen? Well, I, I think there's obviously a lot of ways you can attribute it to, but I, I tend to point towards two women that I think had a, an incredible effect on how we think about food and that created uh, the way that we think about it uh, today. And uh, one of those was Alice Waters, who uh, uh, opened the restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California in 1971, hard to believe now, but over 50 years ago. And Chez Panisse with with Alice She was really one of the very early people to promote the farm to table food uh, idea and really just trying to talk to people about this crazy notion that we should just eat food that is from real ingredients that's grown uh, in in fields with things that we can identify and we should cook uh, food with, you know, real agricultural products and not highly processed industrialized products. The other person, um, who was a little bit, uh, older than Alice waters, but who became, who was very popular in that era was Julia child and, um, Julia child, obviously the famous, uh, chef, and she had a wonderful, she had a couple of wonderful TV shows, um, my brother is always uh, talking to me about the uh, wonderful show, uh, Jacques uh, and Julia, and encouraging me to watch that with uh, with my daughters, which we do from time to time. Really great shows that are still available on YouTube. And Julia Child really talked a lot about the joy of cooking and of food in general. And I love this quote that she had from 1990. She said, everybody is overreacting. If fear of food continues, it will be the death of gastronomy in the United States. Fortunately, the French don't suffer from the same hysteria we do. We should enjoy food and have fun. It is one of the simplest and nicest pleasures in life. And I couldn't agree more with her, uh, her statement there, her, her philosophy, her viewpoint on all these things that, you know, human pleasure is a really important element of everything uh, we do. And and, in things that don't ultimately connect with human pleasure, tend not to survive very long as a trend or as anything important uh, in society. And when, when you pair together, this notion that Julia Child talked a lot about, about how we should really learn to cook and enjoy food and how Alice Waters really pushed the notion of farm-to-table and natural ingredients. You can see what's happened over the last 30 or 40 years as a result uh, and the incredible growth that we've seen in everything from farmer's markets, of which in the 1970s, there were actually less than two thousand farmers' markets in the entire country; just hard to believe. Now there are, you know, tens of thousands of them around the country. The increase in uh, consumption and and uh, manufacture of things like craft food products, craft beer, craft you know more wineries. You see, even fast food companies over the last decade have shifted a lot of their marketing. Uh, maybe they're not shifting their menu items, you know, that much, but they're certainly shifting their marketing to promote that, uh, they're actually using real ingredients more and more. And we can see the impact that that has had, uh, on, uh, how we look at, uh, cooking, eating, uh, whether eating, doing that at home or eating out in the last uh, few decades, the farm to table idea, which most people in the 1970s would have probably thought was an absolutely nutty idea. Why would we do that? We have this industrial food, we have fast food, we have much better ways, quicker ways to do things. Uh, Who's got the time to cook and, and, and sit down and eat. And it's just so complicated and hard when we've got this other simple thing that we could do and I can just get food out of a box. Who would want to do that? Well, farm to table is now almost the default for restaurants, uh, in the United States. Um, and, uh, cooking obviously has seen, uh, a, a major resurgence as well. I think we're still, we still find that there are probably generations of people who really have forgotten the art of cooking and, uh, maybe didn't pick that up from their parents or, or their grandparents. But obviously, there's a tremendous growth in, in, the, in the notion and an interest in cooking at home. And why not? Because, frankly, it's fun. It's really enjoyable. It's incredibly rewarding to be able to uh, put a few ingredients together and make, make a meal for yourself at home and have it taste really good. Uh, I've always enjoyed cooking myself. Uh, and I think uh, as time has gone on, I just enjoy it more and more and really find myself myself experimenting a lot more and growing in ways that, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have expected 40 years ago. And I think that's indicative of a lot of us. We've just, we've kind of lost so much from our approach to uh, eating and to growing food. And so I, I think it's incredibly encouraging what's happened in that world. It's one of the great trends of the last 20, 30, 40 years this approach to, uh, reconnecting with how did your grandparents, how did your great great grandparents eat? Uh, what kind of food were they growing and eating? Uh, because it's not just more enjoyable, it's better for us. Uh, it's more sociable. There's only good things that come from it. The second story I like to tell then is how we changed, how we build our cities and towns. And just like in the world of agriculture and food, uh, cooking and consumption, we had a major shift in how we thought about our cities and towns in the immediate post-war era. Now, it's also true that most of these ideas that were put in that we put in place in the years following World War II were not new. A lot of the ideas and dreams and visions for the city of the future really happened starting in the 19 teens and 20s. But we had you know a 20 year period. We basically had a generation where almost nothing was built because of the Great Depression and World War II. And when the war ended, we had such incredible confidence and gusto and we had the wealth uh, in the United States uh, that other countries didn't have that we had the ability to just go remake our cities and towns. And we did that. And uh, we did it in ways that uh, probably are hard to comprehend today in terms of the scale uh, and the execution, uh, the quick execution of a a lot of very big ideas uh, and the massive amounts of money that were thrown at it from the federal government on down to state and local governments to private corporations it was an incredible remake uh, to create the city of the future that many people idealized, starting in the 19 teens, really uh, as an outgrowth of World War One and and the awful terror that happened in World War One, and people began to think about a different way to be in the 20th century, and uh, we, we we had people who uh, idealized what that could be, and then eventually. We had the resources to execute it and we did that, but it had consequences. Just like our approach to food had consequences that we didn't really comprehend at the time. And that kind of took us away from our, uh, our human nature. The same thing happened with cities and, uh, starting really in the 1960s, there began to be pushback to what we were doing with our cities and towns. And that came from a lot of different quarters. Uh, one of the quarters that I think had an incredible impact was the original historic preservation uh, movement uh, in cities all over the United States where people began to really question what was going on, why it was happening, and whether this was a good thing. You know, We seem to be losing things that had uh, incredible beauty in favor of things that uh, were giving us a lot of ugliness. And I think people reacted to that again in ways just like Julia Child talked about that food should be enjoyable. Life in cities and towns should also be enjoyable and beautiful. That was sort of a default for a lot of the human condition for centuries as we gradually built cities and towns. And we seemed to be getting away from that in the, in the mid 20th century. There was one, uh, historic preservation in, uh, Savannah, Georgia, uh, a banker named Mills lane who had an incredible impact on that town, spent an awful lot of his own fortune just, uh, doing improvements in, in the streetscape and the public right of way. And I love this quote that he had, uh, that says the most enlightened preservationists are trying to restore more than buildings. They wish to restore a sense of community and of humane and civilized values in an age of bigness and speed and too often of loneliness, fear, and conflict. Now, many of those preservationists in those early years uh, were again uh, complete outsiders to the professions of planning, building, and development, but they were horrified at what they were seeing and they were reacting to it. And those preservationists Lost many many battles. If you look uh, at uh, American cities in particular, you can see the scars of incredible buildings and neighborhoods that were demolished uh, in uh, the, the 1950s, all the way through the 1970s, and even into the 80s. There was still a lot of demolition. So they lost a lot of battles, but ultimately, ultimately, they won the war because they began to convince people that we had uh, we were losing. Uh, something that touched our humanity very deeply. And while today's preservationists, I often find myself, you know, uh, not necessarily agreeing with in terms of some of their, uh, some, some of the policies and, and efforts they take on today. I think those early preservationists were incredible, uh, incredible heroes in our cities. And they really helped save our cities from ourselves there are unbelievable beautiful neighborhoods and cities that would have been torn down if not for the efforts of these people and now we have we have those places to enjoy future generations have them to enjoy and they're incredible valuable places now because the emotional tide eventually turned people realized that there was value in those old buildings and those old old neighborhoods there was something that connects and resonates with our human nature and, and so we saved many of those and we invested in them and it's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. We did that parallel to all those preservationists who were fighting battles, uh, in our cities. We had generations of younger people that were starting to study abroad, um, That initially started in in the 1960s in larger numbers, but then really picked up into the 70s and 80s, where young people uh, through programs through high schools and colleges and the Peace Corps and other places, young American people, I should should say, um, were able to get out of their country and go visit places uh, in other parts of the world and see what life was like. So by this time, by the time you hit the, you know, especially let's say the 1980s, many of those European um, cities and towns that had been destroyed in World War II were rebuilt uh, and were thriving again. And there were generations of young people who, like myself, I include myself in in this group, who visited these uh, cities and towns and got to experience an entirely different lifestyle, um, built around walking in urban communities, whether they're small towns or whether they're large cities like Paris or Rome or London and, and really marvel at, you know, how, how wonderful that lifestyle is. And I believe to this day that that still had an incredible impact on the young people who were able to do it. And they were able to Uh, visit places that they otherwise would not have visited and experience a lifestyle that for the most part no longer existed in American cities and towns, which was the idea that you could just live in a place and primarily get around on foot. You could see how this happened later, how this took effect later in the preference for urban living. And over the last 30 years, the, the number of young people who had a preference for urban living has skyrocketed compared to what it was, say, in the 1970s. I use this quote sometimes, but I remember a, a developer friend of mine uh, that I talked to who was uh, working on a project in downtown uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, probably about 20 years ago, we were talking about his project and who he was targeting for his tenants And he, he said it very bluntly. He said, this generation grows up traveling to Europe and they come back wanting to know why America sucks so much. That's not something that, you know, most of us really want to hear that most Americans want to hear. Uh, You know, we're, we love our country. We love our cities. We love our communities, but there, but it really expressed that there was something really missing from what we had done to our cities and towns in the 20th century in our in our country and that was the wholehearted embrace of a lifestyle based around new technologies like the car like other technologies and machines instead of our using our own uh, our own feet our own bodies uh, to get around, to experience life, to bump into people informally while walking around and, and the social nature that comes from that. And that's something that, uh, that many, many people felt like we really lost and it has encouraged people to make changes. And there's no question that that has driven an enormous change in especially how younger generations see life in, uh, In American cities and what they want out of them. That does not mean that people won't want to live in suburbs or small towns. It just means that their expectations of what might happen in those places is going to be different going forward. The more people experience the kinds of lifestyles that are available in countries all over the world where you can actually walk and how natural and enjoyable that seems. The more they're going to push for that in their own community, whether they're in a major urban center or a suburb or a small town, it uh, it cuts across all of those. And we're seeing that all over the United States. We're certainly seeing that in ways in my region here in Kansas City that uh, we had hoped for, we had hoped we would see 20 or 30 years ago. And those things are really starting to happen now. So it's pretty incredible to, to see this, but it's indicative again of how change happened. Another element uh, that impacted uh, that the change in cities, uh, or I shouldn't probably say another element, but another person who had an incredible impact was uh, somebody in the planning profession we all know and revere named Jane Jacobs, who was kind of part of the the preservation crowd in Greenwich Village in New York City in the 1950s and 60s, but she was obviously much more than that. And she had some legendary battles with Robert Moses, who was uh, arguably the most powerful man in America uh, at that point uh, in time and who wanted to build a freeway through Greenwich Village. Jane Jacobs was able to rally uh, a group of people in enough opposition to stop that from happening and then went on to write numerous books about cities and planning and development, uh, including her most famous really being The Death and Life of Great American Cities, although I think I think all of her books are are really interesting and very good. So Jane Jacobs, again, was somebody who was outside the profession at that time and was really on the outside looking in, criticizing what was going on and questioning it and saying, we're missing out on something. You know, something important is happening here that's not good. And we need to stop what we're doing and think about it and do something different. And I think if you, whatever your own world is, whether you're in architecture development or you're interested in something else, I think you can begin to see this pattern over and over of how change often never comes from within a profession. Um, that was kind of a strange sentence, but maybe a better way of saying it is change rarely happens from within a profession. So whether that's architecture and development and cities, which, you, which I talk a lot about, you could also say the same thing about, you know, the environmental movement was in many ways launched by people like Rachel Carson. Uh, you can talk about how it comes from, you know, active living and health and, uh, healthy living and how that has come from outside a lot of even the medical profession. It cuts across almost anything that, that what, what we see a lot of is that whatever your line of work is, you have ideas uh, and practices that develop, they be, and they tend to become an orthodoxy. Those orthodoxies gets, gets enshrined in procedures, in contracts, uh, at first they might be really small contracts experimenting with something new, but eventually they become big and, and, and very, um, uh, very regularized and lucrative. Um, and whatever news media covers, uh, a particular niche or world really tends to adopt a new orthodoxy and then regurgitate it, um, because, you know, the reality, the sad reality is is that most mass media uh, exists to kind of be a PR organ for professionals and for corporations. I've certainly seen this uh, in the architecture world for decades. Uh, and I think it's pretty obvious now across most corporate media, which is why trust in a lot of that media is so historically low. Uh, the internet age and social media have given us windows into that so that we can see Uh, That a lot of what is put out there is just uh, regurgitating uh, maybe a narrative uh, of some kind. And it's not really thoughtful or or questioning, Um, especially when, especially when, whatever an orthodoxy is, if it has a lot of money or a lot of power behind it, it's rarely uh, going to be questioned in any kind of mass media. And so what happens is whatever this thing is that's being done, it, they just persist. And um, what I see a lot of is that a lot of bad ideas and practices just never really go away, or they're very, very difficult to make go away. Uh, So that could be something like the food pyramid. (laughs) This is a a crazy thing. And uh, my wife makes fun of me for complaining about this, but you know, the food pyramid, which has been discredited for like 20 years. It's just, you know, it's, it, it, was a, it was really a terrible way to teach children about food. Uh, and yet you go to schools and daycares and uh, was in a, a doctor's office this morning and there's food pyramid stuff on the wall. It's just it takes so long for a lot of uh, ideas that had at one point become orthodoxy to really go away. In the, in the world of cities, you can see this with notions like level of service in traffic engineering, which is, which is a ridiculous notion. Um, we'll just say it that way. Level of service, like, like so much in the world of traffic engineering was just a completely and utterly made up uh, idea, not based in anything scientific uh, or historic or in human nature, but it sounds really good. It's, you know, you get a letter grade, uh, you get an a you get a c boy if you get an f it must be really bad that must you know that sounds like a really bad thing like we should do something about um, but it's it uh, again it's based in nothing uh, and uh, and yet it continues uh, it continues to be used uh, in every city in the country as if it's fact and as if it uh, has some any kind of rational value uh, i've seen this in the world of of architecture with with a lot of modern architecture, you know, uh, most of my architect friends don't really like to admit this, but the reality is the overwhelming majority of people have never liked most modern or contemporary architecture. And that's been true going back, you know, to when it became dominant in the 1950s and still today. And yet nearly every architecture school in the country still teaches you know modern or contemporary architecture as the only approach there are a handful of places where you can go get a different uh, outlook or education uh, and experiment with more traditional forms of architecture but by and large you cannot and there's an incredible disconnect between what we see from uh, visual preference surveys and what what people actually like and prefer versus what Uh, persists in the profession. So what I see or an observation I've had is that even when a lot of our ideas and policies and programs fail, the professionals themselves never own up and accept the blame. Uh, Instead, we tend to just blame ordinary people and say it's their own fault. So in the world of architecture, we should say, well, people are just stupid. They don't have any taste. You know, they need to be educated, uh, in air quotes, uh, in order to really appreciate uh, this type of architecture that uh, all of us uh, in our tiny little bubble like. In the world of uh, traffic design and city planning, you know, we've spent uh, 100 years uh, building big roadways and highways and and making, uh, driving fast, the default nature of life in American cities. And then people speed everywhere and they do stupid things on the roads. And what do we do? We blame the people. We never, we don't blame the professionals who created this world. Uh, or, you know, especially if those professionals are us, if it's, if it's we who did that instead, it's easier to just say, well, it's those people, those ordinary people with all their flaws. And you can really see this across every walk of life, from the design world to public health to drug wars, if you want to go there, that we create decades of really bad top-down policies and programs that obviously fail, but then we blame the non-policy-making humans uh, as the problem. And this is generally how things go until someone challenges a profession gets traction with it, and upsets the apple cart. That's what happened with Alice Waters and Julia Child, who challenged the way we were thinking. And it it took years, but eventually they changed how we do things relating to growing food, cooking food, and eating food. That's what happened with Jane Jacobs, who challenged the planning profession especially and what we were doing. And the planning profession, um, while certainly not adopting all of her ideas, I think in, in many ways you could say um, the planning profession has ignored a lot of her really excellent ideas related to economics uh, of cities. But it's almost entirely adopted Jane Jacobs critique of walkable mixed use places and the importance of those uh, in cities. So another thing related to this, you know, next a uh, couple of weeks from now, we've got, uh, well, as I'm recording this today, it'll probably be a week or so when it comes out. Uh, the Congress for their New Urbanism has their annual uh, get together coming up in Charlotte, North Carolina at CNU 31. And one of the things uh, I see is <clears throat> how even in a reform movement like the new urbanism, which is what it is. It was a reform movement. It was, it was building on the legacy of the work of people like, uh, Jane Jacobs, uh, to try to reform the way we build cities and towns and better connect them with our, with our own human natures. And ultimately reform movements also mature and seem to develop their own orthodoxy. And, and certainly as someone who's been involved in that group for going on 25 years, that uh, what what I certainly see now is we have where we used to have robust debates about many, many things, we now have a lot of groupthink. Uh, And there's fewer things of real importance that are debated. Um, The opinions of people in the professional class and the culture of the professional class and the politics are pretty much just accepted, you know, widely as reality. uh, And, you know, it's not just that a lot of this is kind of silly and disingenuous, uh, but it's, it just gets to a place where it's kind of humorless and and kind of boring, to be honest. Um, it, it's not reality, but what happens is, you know, as, as this movement has matured and as many of us in it have gotten older, we've just created a comfortable little cocoon, uh, for ourselves, uh, to kind of feel good about who we are and what we're doing and, and really to seek, um, approval of other professional class peers. And that is a way that I think change movements eventually uh, die uh, and, and, and go away. And that, and that, you know, that, that happens. That that's just the part, that's part of the nature of things as, as uh, our friend Johnny Sanfilippo who does the wonderful blog granola shotgun says, everything has a beginning, a middle and an end. And uh, change movements certainly have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it might be that the new urbanism movement is at an end. It's, it's entirely possible. Outside that really tiny microscopic world uh, of new urbanism, um, what we also see is that we're, we're in a time period right now where, where a whole lot of things just don't work very well. And trust generally is low in society. I've talked about this before, written about this a little bit that. Uh, this is kind of the the notion of what's written about uh, as like a fourth turning. Uh, there's a there's a book uh, called The Fourth Turning. It's it's it it sounds a little kind of scary and out there when you hear the, that phrase, but it's really just about generational change and that we're in we're in a a major era of uh, generational change that's happening. And it's needed a lot of that change is needed. Uh, and as you can see so much stuff that's not working I I thought I'd share these couple of quotes. Um, Jason Segety, who's uh, a city planner in Akron, Ohio, and he used to write more regularly has really, really hasn't written much in a while, but he had this blog that you can find on Tumblr called notes from the underground. And here's something he wrote. Um, back in uh, 2020, I think this was 2020 or late 2020 or early 2021. I forget the dates, but a couple of quotes that I want to share that I thought were really wise that he he said. He said, people, again, with good reason, have lost faith that big top-down institutions, leaders, and plans are going to fix what ails us. They look around and see many of the most basic of societal functions, be they public health, public safety, or economic security, either not being done, not being done competently, or not being done equitably. This has been going on to one degree or another for decades now. For many of us, a world of weakening, increasingly incompetent, and distrusted institutions is the only one that we have ever known. None of this was caused by the pandemic. The pandemic was simply the catalyst that made all of this impossible to ignore. And he goes on to say, in the future, People will be looking for anything, even simple little things that might demonstrate competence, provide stability, build community, and reestablish trust. They will look locally in their own cities and neighborhoods for this. Some places are going to be able to meet that non-negotiable basic human need much better than others. If you work in community building, your goal should be to make your community one of those places. I would build off of what Jason said there, which, uh, Jason is really an excellent writer. I, I wish he would write more often. And, uh, maybe somebody can send him this uh, podcast and encourage him to share what's going on in his world more often. Uh, I thought he was always one of the more interesting voices, uh, out there in the world of, uh, city planning. I would build off of it and, and say, uh, don't be dismayed, uh, persist in spite, uh, of everything that is going on. So yeah, I think we're, we're in a major era of generational change and it can be scary and exciting all at the same time. But change and improvements aren't going to come from within a lot of our failing systems. Change is going to come from the next Jane Jacobs or Julia Child or Rachel Carson And we should all remember that those people who ask questions, seek deeper answers and really want things to work for ordinary people are frequently demonized. All you have to do is look at the history of how some of these people that we revere now were treated by the expert class in their own times. I mean, it's shocking in mean, many ways. Jane Jacobs was called, you know, her and her group were called nothing but a but a bunch of ignorant housewives. You know, they couldn't possibly know what they were talking about. Um, every one of these people who really took a stand, you know, for things that we uh, find to be common sense today, uh, were treated in, in in terrible ways. So if you head down that path and you feel like somebody who wants to uh, really push one of our professions and and try to get it to work better in your community or just for for people, understand that you better find some strength because um, people are probably going to come after you, and it could get really ugly. It often does for reformers. Uh, So be prepared for that. I share all this because... I think there, I think a lot of change is needed in the way that we plan, develop and build our cities and towns. I obviously thought so for, for 30 years uh, or more and have been working to try to make those changes. And uh, I, I'm the kind of person that I get, I'm very sensitive to groupthink, And I think we have to all be really mindful of how groupthink can enter into all of our lives uh, without us really noticing. And uh, one day you think you're an independent thinker and the next day you realize that everybody around you agrees with you on everything. And that's not a good recipe for getting things done. We have to understand um, that a lot of what you read and see in the media, whatever media you consume, almost all of it's a distortion field. Uh, It's mostly PR. You know, my dad uh, used to tell me all the time uh, when I was a kid, he would say, uh, don't believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. And uh, I think I've taken that to heart. Um, Some, maybe some of my friends would say I've taken it too much to heart. Uh, But I think over time I have felt like that has been truly justified and it's important because there's an awful lot of media that seeks to divide us as humans, uh, that seeks to demonize people who are good people trying to do things, uh, for their communities, trying to make maybe make change that needs to be made to try to stand up for, um, for themselves, their friends, their neighbors, there's just an awful lot of it that is ugly and divisive. And uh, it's important to see through that and understand where that's coming from. And frankly, that a lot of it's just nonsense. I've always felt that it's a, it, it's a good path to go down to try to cultivate friends and colleagues that have wildly different opinions even some that are really uncomfortable, whatever, you know, whatever your worldview is, it's good to be challenged by somebody who has a very different worldview because this is a big, big planet with 8 billion people on it and lots of different ways of seeing the world and lots of different ways of experiencing things and many different values that people have. There is no one value or approach to looking at life. So embrace heterodox views as you have the opportunity and try to cultivate friends and colleagues that have a diversity of opinions. If you're part of an institution or a group that you really are hoping can succeed long-term, it's going to need that diversity of opinion, uh, which is hard to do. It's much harder to do than just surrounding yourself with people who agree with you but strength and success uh, comes through difficulty and not through comfort so if you want your group your institution to uh, not just survive but to thrive uh, this is a, this is a time period where you really need to seek out and cultivate uh, those diversity of viewpoints about life, about your community itself, and figure out a way to integrate that into what you're doing. What I see uh, and I think I feel good about what uh, about this opinion is that the institutions, the groups that uh, are single-minded, that where it's people who only see the world a certain way, uh, those are all headed for failure. Uh, In this, in this time period of change, but those people who can really build strength through diversity of opinion, those stand a good chance to succeed and be those leaders uh, that Jason Segeti was referring to in, in his blog post to be those people in the community that are uh, islands of stability and competence that we can rally around. So those are some thoughts that I have about how change happens, how it's made um, and uh, in, the, in the professions and the, the world that I have been a part of for many years now, and what I see can be useful going forward. So I hope that's wh- helpful to all of you as you think about what is going on in your own little world, whether that's uh, a neighborhood, a community, a larger area a profession um, and I hope that uh, I hope that we can all find ways to create new uh, new islands of stability and uh, and better ways forward uh, for how our communities are and the ways that we live in them uh, because it's certainly needed as we march deeper into the twentieth twenty first century. Thank you all for listening. please. Feel free to share this uh, podcast, to like it or follow it on whatever platform you use to let other people know about it. I've got a bunch of great guests scheduled coming up uh, in the next month or month and a half. Uh, really appreciate all of the uh, feedback that I'm getting on the podcast from, from anybody who sends me a note. You can always send me an email. I'm very easy to find. It's Kevin Klinkenberg at gmail.com. Send me a note. Let me know what you think. Any suggestions you have for guests or topics, and I'll be happy to get to it as time allows. But uh, this has been an enjoyable venture for me. And if you are headed to CNU 31 in Charlotte, I will see you there. Take care, everybody.